Welcome everyone to the Vegetable Beat, which is a live um, weekly webcast and podcast for vegetable growers in the Midwest and Great Lakes region. We broadcast every Wednesday. Um, <clears throat> Um, my name is Ben Worling, and I will be your host today. I'm from Michigan State University, and I'm pleased to have Dr. Mary Hausbeck with us today, who's um, one of my favorite people to interact with, um, <clears throat> who is our vegetable and ornamental plant pathologist um, with Michigan State University. Um, for those of you who are listening um, via Zoom, we want to get your questions, so please put them into um, the Q&A box and we can um, get those answered for you. If you are seeking CCA credits or Michigan pesticide credits, please put your name and email into the chat and we will take care of that. Um, so Mary, I've, I've had the pleasure of getting to work with you since I started my career, but not everybody knows you. Could you, could you introduce yourself and kind of your maybe love-hate affair with the oomycete world today? Um, yeah, sure. Um, I have been in my role at MSU um, for more than 30 years. In, in our laboratory, we focus on um, solving um, disease problems that are impacting the vegetable growers in our state. And so I have an extension split and a research split. And our, our research questions that we aim to solve um, really come from our extension interactions with the growers. We, we focus on um, the issues they're having with plant pathogens, the questions that they have, and really try to deliver the answers they need to be successful and sustainable in the long run. So. I consider ourselves a very applied um, research um, laboratory, although sometimes to get those ready answers to growers, we have to delve in and understand a lot more about the biology and sometimes the genetics of the pathogen. Yeah, absolutely. And um, for the group we're talking about today, a lot of that work that you've done feeds right into management. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. And so to set... Um, I'll use a cliche here to, to set the table, so to speak, for today. Um, our, the pathogen we'll be featuring is, um, are the oomycetes, the pathogen group we'll be featuring, are the oomycetes or um, water molds, which um, are different from our more familiar pathogens like um, fungi and bacteria. Nice. So I wanted to ask you, Mary, could you, could you introduce um, who that group is and what makes that oomycete group unique? Yeah, so I, I think of this group as being a little bit lower on, on the pecking order, if you will, of the of the pathogen scale. You know, if you're a true fungi, which might, you know, would include maybe anthracnose, colotetricum, or powdery mildew, you you might like look down your nose at the oomycete <laughs> as, you know, kind of these more simplistic algal-like um, organisms that kind of are beneath you. Um, but for the growers, for growers, what I would really like growers to remember is that this oomycete group, when we talk about control, our control management strategies almost always includes a very different group of fungicides than for the true fungi. And so I know that it can be difficult to try to figure out what to what, what control measure to use for what problem on what crop. And if we think about the phytophthoras, the downy mildews, and the pythiums being somewhat related 
and therefore requiring a different, a very different control strategy than our other true fungi of, like I said, you know, an early blight, a calatatricum, um, a powdery mildew, that if you can think of that, it, it will help kind of make sense as far as what control strategy to use when you're trying to combat these really highly destructive um, oomycete pathogens. Um, okay, that, that makes sense, Mary. So we're not using our, our typical protectants or fungicides for, for, these, for the oomycete pathogens. We need uh, very targeted fungicides. Yeah, we, we often use very targeted fungicides. Um, an exception, you know, can be our downy mildews where we will use our general protectants along with our more downy mildew specific fungicides. And so that gets a little bit more complicated because that's um, a foliar pathogen. But again, um, really the control measures that we use for our oomycetes, you know, tend to be separate from some from our other commonly occurring, like true fungi sorts of problems. So um, some of the most destructive oomycetes, Miri, are, um, you mentioned um, downy mildew and, and phytophthora. And I wanted to ask you why, why do they seem to be a group that um, cause a lot of misery and maybe are, sometimes it seems a lot faster acting than some pathogens. Is there a reason behind that, their destruction or or why they're so destructive? Yeah, I, I think um, I think now if we if we focus on the group of oomycetes and then talk about breaking down the the different players within that uh -huh. group, that could be helpful because okay. the, the reasons why they are so su successful and therefore so destructive can vary a little bit. Um, Phytophthora um, crown and root rot is um, a soil borne pathogen. And it's really successful because it can survive in the soil for a long period of time, even when it doesn't have one of its, one of its juicy hosts that it, it most uh -huh. desires. So, so it can lay in the soil and it can wait. And it has a very unique structure um, where it, it called the swimming spore, the zoospore. So under conditions of some of the gully washer type rains that we've had, those zoospores form really rapidly in a matter of minutes. And then um, in those high volumes, they can then spread throughout a field really very quickly. And so I see. you have a couple things. You have um, the Phytophthora's ability to, to reside in a soil once that soil is infested for many years. And then you also have that pathogen's ability to ramp up really quickly and produce a very large number of spores when the conditions are favorable. So those are two hallmarks that I think of um, that, that really make that pathogen um, quite difficult. Uh -huh. For the downy mildew, um, what has happened there is that um, in Michigan since 2005, um, a, a new strain of downy is thought to have been introduced into our region. And, and prior to that, our cucumbers were genetically resistant, you know. Oh, I didn't know that. In the first part of my career, I never worried about downy mildew on cucumber. It was a non-issue. Um, the downy mildew does not overwinter 
um, outside in Michigan, it does not have a survival spore, like I just mentioned with the Phytophthora, but rather it must either overwinter in the more Southern regions of the U.S. Um, that don't experience a frost, or they mu must be harbored in, a, in an environment like a greenhouse in the Northern regions uh -huh. in order to survive. But in those greenhouses, they'd have to be like cucumber production greenhouses. Uh -huh. It has to survive during the winter in those protected environments on a living plant. Got it. And so, so, you know, in that case, the reason why that pathogen is so successful is that it has managed to overcome the genetic resistance that, that once was relied upon almost wholly. Huh. And then the other factor is that it can reproduce so fast and then um, under favorable conditions. So it can reproduce on the foliage and then it can be dispersed via air relatively long distances, depending on the weather. So huh. um, it, it's very savvy. Um, it's overcome cucumber resistance. It reproduces in large numbers when the weather is favorable and it moves via air currents and that allows it to seek um, new plantings and cause new infections, you know, in a pretty rapid period of time. Got it. So it sounds like Phytophthora is kind of a laying weight pathogen that can be destructive because it lasts so long and then can quickly deploy its zoospores. Yes. And downy is really a newer arrival and um, it can reproduce um, quickly when conditions are favorable and move long distances. Correct. And across each of those, both Phytophthora and downy, um, they have the capability, oh, excuse me, <coughs> to become resistant to fungicides. Got it. Um, and so things that worked in the past may not work right now, and you have to continually yes. do work it, to update your recommendations. That is especially true for downy mildew. In, in downy mildew, it's been shocking. Um, and I would even use the word scary um, to think about the last, you know, 15 years or so, the number of fungicides that we had at the beginning, although this pathogen arrived in 2005, already resistant to two key groups of fungicides already when it arrived. Um, but since then, we've had a number of really important fungicides um, prove not to be useful. And so we run extensive trials every year in Michigan. And then my colleagues in the Southeast US run similar trials because we recognize that we may have some differences in our populations of downy mildew in this Great Lakes region versus the Southeast US. Huh? And so we wanna make sure that growers um, have the recommendations they need for their growing region. Uh -huh. but, but every year it, it really is a moving target. And so for downy mildew on cucumber, um, you know, the recommendations have to come from the current year in, in order to be um, the most viable recommendations. Got it. Um, so I wanted to ask you, Mary, um, so we talked about these two pathogens moving around very different ways. Um, because we're talking about downy, maybe we can focus on that first and um, just 
just to be clear, we've got clade one and two, and is it clade two that affects the, the melons and cucumbers? Yeah. Um, okay. So over the years, you know, a number of researchers, you know, have been working to understand this new introduced um, downy mildew that is totally disrespectful of the cucumber um, resistance that had been in place really since the 50s. And um, so they've determined that they're genetically these, these groups separate out. And then we have clay too, primarily in the Great Lakes region. And cucumber is a very important host within that group. And then melon can also be a host. And then we track this pathogen. We've tracked it for a number of years. And, um, you know, we, we look at air samples and we also look at plant samples. And with very few exceptions, we've had almost entirely clay too. Um, this year, we are making more of an effort um, to see if clade one does come into our state and clade one would go to the squashes, it'd go to the pumpkins. Um, and so we actually have planted trap crops. Um, we planted them a little bit later, so they would be really viable. They oh, cool. still have healthy foliage in September and October because, um, you know, potential hypothesis is that clade one um, may have to come up from the Southeast U.S. and it may take longer for it to leapfrog among, you know, the pumpkin crops from, from Southeast, you know, from the Southeast U.S. all the way up to Michigan. And so um, we plan to monitor longer in the fall, the air samples, um, the air sampling network that we have. And we planted fairly large trap crops of some of these other cucurbits. And again, the idea of having that the foliage will be, you know, in pretty good shape come this fall because we planted them a little bit later and then we will protect against powdery mildew, giving any potential downy mildew an opportunity just to see, um, is does clay two come into our area first? And is that what we see through August? Does, does clay one never make it up to Michigan? Or does it come in later? And if we sample later, we would see it. Um, but, you know, at the beginning of this, this initial outbreak, you know, from 2005 to 2010, you know, we were asking growers to protect all cucurbits <laughs> against bounty mildew. And, you know, by knowing more of the genetics and doing more um, monitoring both of air samples and also of plant samples, we've really been able to hone our fungicide recommendations and we target um, primarily the cucumber and melon growers. And that saves, you know, the pumpkin growers and, and growers, it saves them worry and it saves them expense and they can focus on the pathogens that we know we're going to have. Um, absolutely, Mary. I know I've had that question from Okay. squash growers who had been using downy materials and well you really don't need them and and we've got a um, another thing that you mentioned here in Michigan thanks to Dr. Hausbeck um, you, you kind of monitor the migration or movement mm -hmm. of downy mildew with spore traps just like you might monitor where geese migration yeah for um, pollen counts or pollen counts mm -hmm. Um, but how would, if, if you are a grower in Michigan or outside of it, what's the best way to keep track of your downy mildew risk? 
Yeah. So um, there are a couple things um, on our webpage on the four growers. Um, I mean, when I'm looking for my own webpage, I put in my name and I put four growers and it's like the fastest way to get to my, my, um, my, my lab page. And then it will say cucumber. It will say downy mildew news. And then if you click on that, you'll see a map of Michigan, which we have been very busy updating. You'll see the outbreaks of downy that have been confirmed in the various counties. So first you can see if a disease outbreak has been reported in or near your production area, you can see what crop it was reported on. And right now we have seven counties in Michigan. Um, we added three just since Friday. And then, and then also you can go to the spore trapping um, document that's there. And that's the air sampling document. And then we update that um, usually Wednesday evening. And so the, the spore trap reels are collected on Monday. They're processed Tuesday. The PCRs are run on Wednesday. And then we um, examine and talk through the results usually around five o'clock today. And then we post them um, soon after. So for instance, you know, we are always a few days behind because that trap runs for a week and then we need a couple days of processing. But um, last week, for instance, we had positives, um, not surprisingly from Saginaw and Bay County. Um, we have, you know, we have as many traps out as we have resources for and that we can handle. Um, so I would say between, between the county map, um, where we have had outbreaks in the field, the air sampling, and then take, take a look at the weather. Right now, um, I would say any cucumber grower um, in the state has to um, be subscribing to a rigorous fungicide program against downy mildew. Um, we went through a weekend of extremely favorable conditions. Um, it wasn't the first episode of extremely favorable conditions, high humidity, um, rainfall time such that we had extended periods of leaf wetness, um, overcast, overcast conditions. And if you think of um, a tiny downy mildew sporangia or spore traveling via air, what could be better to travel than overcast skies so the, sun, the sun's light does not degrade you and humid conditions so you don't dry out. And so I think the conditions were favorable for, for spread from infected parcels to healthy parcels. And then um, the extended periods of, of leaf wetness from rain and or dew, super, super conducive to that spore that would have landed to infect. And so I think we've just had, um, you know, I have a saying, um, that, you know, when I, when I look at the weather, I'll say, boy, it's, it's a good day to be a downy mildew spore. <laughs> and, and those are not good days to be a cucumber grower. And we've had a lot of days that have been really good to be a downy mildew sporangia. Well, that, um, that makes sense. And I think um, even if you aren't in Michigan, the, the two things that you kind of talked about are knowing communication, is it in the state mm -hmm. or in your area? And then environmental conditions. So if those two things line up, then you probably need to get 
your A game going. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we work really closely with the scouts and consultants and, you know, we really have worked hard to be partners in this because, you know, it really takes um, a team that's broad across the state. It takes people such as yourself, the extension educators. It takes um, those that are in growers fields um, every day as scouts, consultants or, or sales individuals you know, keeping an eye peeled. So we feel confident that we can get the, these early reports posted um, for the good of everyone and for the good of the industry and to make sure people have enough warning um, to put forward these important fungicide applications right away. Because timing is everything, um, especially for the second crop of pickling cucumbers. Um, you know, it, it's, it's recently emerged um, it's going, it needs to be grown during a time of what looks to be soon a statewide epidemic. And it's good. We've been in this situation before other years and it, it really takes, um, good choices and good timings of those good products to ensure that these, these crops come off in late August through mid-September. Mary, so we talked about, um, Maybe we can um, finish up with Donnie Mildew with talking about kind of the um, fungicide recommendations. Mm -hmm. So I put a link in the chat to your website, which does contain those. But are there any changes to um, this year compared to last year? I you know some of the usual suspects like Zampro and Ranman and Arandis. What's what's new this year or what should growers be aware of on that front? Yeah, so thanks, Ben. Um, we have made adjustments even from the beginning of this year. Um, now, last year, um, we had included um, some products in our recommendations that we have not included this year. And then, so we have Ranman and Arondis Opti and Zampro, and, and those three um, should look familiar familiar to most growers, because those really have been the mainstay of our program now. Um, now, there is a product that, that I added um, just in the last week, and that's because um, there is a generic version of a product known as Omega. Um, so Omega was the original product that we have tested every year for a dozen years. And the active ingredient is fluazinam. And so it's not that we just decided it's effective this year. We just didn't include it in recommendations previously because the Omega product was so expensive. Mm -hmm. You know, I had, I had mentioned it as an option in particular one year, um, I think a few years ago when we were just in terrible situation with really runaway downy mildew and growers were concerned they were not going to get to the finish line in September. And so we were looking for a new active and, you know, I mentioned Omega and, you know, it, it, it's just that original product was just priced um, too high. Um, pickling cucumber grower, growers, like a lot of processed lot of growers of processing vegetables, you know, um, those profits are, are usually quite razor thin. And so um, there is now a generic material. Um, Orbis is, is one product I found on the CDMS website. It seems like other 
um, regions in the country have um, different generic products that are available to them. So if you're searching for a generic of Omega, there may be others than the one that I have listed, which is Orbis 4F. Um, just remember that the active ingredient that you're looking for is fluazinam. And this generic material is cost-effective. And, and so I think should be added into the rotation. I want to make a really important note that each of the products that we listed, the Randman, the Arondis Opti, the Zampro, and the Orbis, should be mixed with either the chlorothalonil or mancozeb, and those should be full rates. Um, now, the Arondis Opti is a mix of, already has chlorothalonil in that mix. Uh-huh. However, however, you can add one pint of Bravo Weather Stick. Oh. So if you add in an, an additional one pint of chlorothalonil, Bravo Weather Stick is an example, then you do have a full rate of that Bravo. Got it. That's interesting. And Let's- I would recommend that. You know, given what we're seeing in this outbreak, given the weather, um, given the weather conditions that just really literally have kept me on edge Uh (laughs) Um, recently, um, I I think it's it's well worth it then even for Rhonda's Opti to add that one pint of Bravo weather stick. For Zampro, Orbis and Ranman, you would add, you know, the two pints of, of Bravo weather stick. Um, keep in mind, uh, you know, another important note, you know, with, with this fluazinam or Orbis product, you would need to use that early in the production phase because it has a seven day pre-harvest interval. Got it. And in our trials, and again, we have run these trials for a really long time. And, and, and the fluazinam has been part of these trials. We have really good data that it's effective. Um, we had used the 24 fluid ounce rate. Um, the Orbis label has a has a range of rates, and in our trials, we use that 24 fluid ounce rate. Got it. Thanks, Mary. That's really helpful um, for our, our pickle growers, and to have another material in there that might be priced competitively. Yeah. Um, I wanted. Um, if we have time, Mary, maybe we could talk briefly about Phytophthora. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've had some, after a dry start, we had some heavy rains and um, it's certainly cropping up um, and just focusing on cucurbits. You know, we're um, harvesting summer squash and zucchini in some parts now of the um, state now and in other parts, those plants are growing and going to start soon. And then we've also got winter squash, which are kind of a different animal. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you could, um, if you have time, just talk about, um, maybe talk about the summer squash and zucchini first and, and maybe focus on fruit protection, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. All right. So the phytophthora issue um, is, you know, we, we need to switch gears and, and remember that phytophthora is a soil borne pathogen. It does not spread via air. It can spread by rain splash or irrigation splash, water splash, but it does not, 
It does not, um, it's not liberated and moved in air currents like we talked about a lot for downy mildew. That's really important to remember. And so for the fresh market growers that are growing on raised beds, black plastic, you know, that, black, that plastic, you know, actually works as a physical shield to prevent the splash up of the soil onto the fruit or onto the foliage. And that really is a plus. Um, also, you know, via drip, to keep the plants alive, you need um, a soil applied fungicide, which is much easier to put through the drip. And so, you know, to keep your, your summer squash and zucchini alive, first of all, the yellow squash is much more susceptible than the green zucchini. So it can be a bit more challenging to keep the plants alive to uh -huh. begin with. But again, if, if you have the black plastic as the barrier, you have drip to put on the fungicides um, to the soil, then you rely on the foliar fungicide applications to protect the fruit. So it's kind Got of two-stage, that two-stage process. And one Got thing, um, over the years, um, we've had, I've had really difficult conversations with growers because of the huge losses that they've experienced and the frustration and the fear of losing a whole crop or having a crop rejected. I mean, it's been pretty awful. And so um, the good news is that over the years, we've had better fungicides become labeled. However, what I have learned is that there is an expectation from growers um, that I think we need to talk about. And, and that expectation is that they can make applications of these fungicides at 14 day intervals and be fine. And that's not the case. And so if you're gonna to subscribe to a fungicide program to protect the fruit and, and you, you are willing to um, do that, spend the time and the money, then you have to shorten up that interval considerably. And I actually got into kind of a, a I would say a tense discussion one time with a grower um, because they were unhappy with um, the recommendations that had come from our field research. And I think the conversation went something like, you know, these products would work a lot better if you applied them at shorter intervals. And so then, so that became a challenge. So the grower, you know, went from a 14 day application interval to a seven day application interval. And the products worked far better at that seven day application. Uh -huh. Now, now that is not cheap, clearly. Um, but when I mentioned, when I made a comment about if they were satisfied, especially given the increased cost of being of application every seven days, the answer was, well, I don't make any money if I don't have a crop. So, yeah, you know, anyway, um, you know, that follows what we have seen with our research. And so while we have better fungicides than what we had 10, 15 years ago, if those fungicides are not applied at, at short application intervals, you won't be satisfied. And there you will have already spent some money on fungicides and still have crop loss. Yeah. So I think that's really important. Gotcha, Mary. And um, for summer squash and zucchini, I know that those fruit are continually developing. Yeah. How does that play into your application interval and also the products you choose since you are going to be picking frequently? 
Right. And so, um, you know, since that fruit is so rapidly expanding, you can imagine that, you know, a shorter interval is going to probably work to your advantage. And it, and it probably isn't too hard to imagine why a 14 day interval was really missing the mark. However, you do need coverage of the fruit. There, there have been, um, I mean, it would be lovely, but it doesn't happen this way. You know, growers may hope that if they apply the fungicide to the foliage, the fungicide is absorbed by the foliage and translocated to the fruit. That is not how it works. And so, you know, any fruit that that is expanding that's unprotected is vulnerable. Mm -hmm. It also speaks to needing good coverage. And sometimes that good coverage is best obtained by maybe increasing rope spacing plant spacing to decrease the denseness of the canopy to do whatever is possible to huh. get um, good coverage. Because again, you, you must get coverage of the fruit. It's not enough to, you know, cover the leaves and then assume that that product will be moved to the fruit and provide protection, if you will, from the inside out. It just Got isn't it. how it happens. Got it. So overall, um, a strategy any grower can use if you're, whether you're organic or conventional is, um, if you can do it, blast black plastic mulch with raised beds keeps soil with the pathogen from splashing <laughs> on the fruit. Mm-hmm. Then you can protect the fruit, um, if you're, are able to at frequent intervals with an effective fungicide with good coverage. Um, mm-hmm. Now, in the winter squash world, it's a bit different because you have a fruit that's sitting on the ground for a long period of time. Yeah. Um, and I, but you've done some really neat recent work showing that, at least for some cultivars, there's a window that's important, that's most yeah. important. Mm-hmm. I wondered if you could share some of that work. Yeah, so, um, you, you know, when we started this research many years ago, um, you know, we had these different cucurbit types that are all susceptible to Phytophthora. And, you know, they each had their kind of special needs. And I considered um, the harder winter squash to be the most challenging of all of the cucurbits, um, in part because um, the long maturity time, um, the fact that you have these trailing vines that even if when you're using black plastic, these vines, you know, readily trail off the plastic, and then the fruit are developing on that soil surface that can contain the phytophthora spore. And, um, you know, and for our processing industry, which is really important, you know, to some regions of our state, again, the profit margins pretty razor thin. And so they're not able to use the raised beds, black plastic, trickle irrigation, um, the, the costs associated with these frequent fungicide applications you know, I mean, it just isn't sustainable in, in the overall economics of this crop. So my goodness, what do we do? Uh-huh. And, um, and so, you know, my initial thought was, can we help to bracket the sprays? You know, because oftentimes um, what happens is the sprays begin, you know, once, once disease is observed in the field, and sometimes that's just too late. And so we began, we started to work with with what is called age-related resistance. Uh And so what we learned is that the the young developing fruit are extremely susceptible, very susceptible, um, up to about 21 days post-pollination. 
And then some cultivars, especially if it's a Moshada type, um, then there's some, some natural resistance that begins to form within the fruit that they become less susceptible. They, they are not immune by any, by any means, but they're less susceptible. So what that told us is that we, we needed to guide the industry to make sure that they protected the fruit, especially in fields where they were concerned that they had had previous problems, they knew they were growing on an infested farm, um, that they had to protect those fruit early, really, really quite vigorously. Um, but then what was important is that we recognized that one of the most popular um, squash types grown for processing remained susceptible through the whole maturity process. It's crazy susceptible. Uh-huh. Um, that's my technical term, crazy. <laughs> and and um, there for the growers, I, I, I don't know what to, I, I, I don't know how to help uh-huh. because that fruit is so, so susceptible throughout the entire maturity that it seems like really a losing battle. And then we did some work last year and it's kind of one of these things that um, was not quite intentional. And we had to make all these adjustments due to COVID and our ability to, to do field research with limited people and limited, you know, ability to travel and all of that. So we triaged one experiment um, and it turned out differently than what we thought, but we learned something really important is that even the crown rot um, varied according to whether it was a Moshada type or not. Uh-huh. So not only were the Moshada types, you know, had this age-related resistance where the fruit became less susceptible after 21 days, but it was also less susceptible to crown rot, huh. where, where again, the most favored processing squash type um, grown in some of our regions, not only is the fruit highly susceptible, but so is the crown. So first you got to battle to keep the plant alive. And if you're successful keeping the plant alive, then it's a battle until harvesting to keep that fruit healthy. And so we've really been looking at alternatives to that particular um, cultivar um, of squash because it's just a non-starter for our industry. We're we're just really hurting ourselves um, because with every... you know, with every portion of a field or abandoned field, you know, of this particular highly susceptible squash that is abandoned and then plowed under, you're just further increasing the level of pathogen within that parcel, making it even harder to ever come back to that parcel, even after being out of cucurbits for several years. So Uh I I just see that we have to be on a different path. So... So it sounds like, so Mary, just for our listeners, the Machada group is, that would contain, the butternut is the probably the most common one yeah. folks know, mm-hmm. um, and some related varieties. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. the the Maxima group, which contains like Hubbard squashes, tends to be... Very susceptible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so in that Machada group, it sounds like um, protecting that fruit in the 21 days after it's, it's set... Um, can do some real, real good. Yeah. And again, it doesn't mean that those fruit are immune. In fact, we have seen that any damage to the fruit like negates the resistance. Huh. Interesting. 
So any, any physical damage to, to the rind of that fruit negates the age-related resistance. It just tells me that, you know, we would need those shorter intervals at the beginning of that fruit development. And then, and then maybe as the fungicides continue, we could lengthen those, those fungicide applications. Um, and that as we look at the different tiers of products, you know, some being, you know, all of them having some merit, but perhaps some being like, I would say maybe a, a notch better than others that we'd probably want to use those really highly effective materials at shorter intervals up until that 21 day post-pollination. And then we could maybe start to incorporate some of our effective, but maybe tier two products, you know, following that 21 day mark. And then we could lengthen those intervals, you know, to keep the economics in line with, with, with what a grower can sustain as far as fungicide costs. So, so it's not perfect. Um, but it, again, we have a bit of a, a place to grab onto um, that is based on, on real information, real data. Um, and again, you know, trying to find an alternative for that really desirable processing squash type, you know, that has the color, that has the maturity time, that has the bricks, but is not so um, crazy susceptible. Um. Thank you, Mary. That's really helpful to think about it that way. The kind of when you have your major fruit set, you know, tighten up protection, use good products. And then as that major fruit set gets passed, kind of lengthen the intervals and incorporate more affordable yeah. products. So what are um, what products are you really um, not excited about, but what what products have performed well and you might consider if you're I'm growing either summer squash, zucchini, or, or winter squash. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, we did talk about the Arondas products, um, you know, in in the downy mildew. So there's there's an Arondas Ultra um, that we talk about for Phytophthora. It has two, it's a premix of two um, proven, um, known effective Phytophthora materials. One is Oxythia piperlin, and then that's that's in a premix with mandapropamid. And so, you know, that I think is a good product, um, and, and that's that's newer. And then we've had Presidio for quite well several years now, and it, it has a different mode of action, and it has good soil activity, and um, I think that has remained a good tool for us. Now, the mandapropamid that I mentioned that's as part of the premix is also available as a standalone product, uh-huh. Rebus. We also have um, a product from Valent. It's Illumin, and that's, again, relatively new. And that has okay. a different mode of action than either the Arondas, the Presidio, or the Rebus. And so those, to me, would, would make up you know, kind of the top tier uh-huh. and then some of the effective, but I would characterize them as, as just a second tier based on our data would include things um, like forum. Okay. But forum has a similar mode of action as mandapropamid. Um, gavel, um, gavel has a relatively long PHI, um, which may not be super important in the winter squash, but could uh-huh. be quite important 
in the zucchini summer squash. Um, and then we have Ranman, and then we also have Zampro. Okay. So then, you know, again, those could be um, maybe targeted after that 21 day of pollination. Um, again, their longevity is not as good, I would say. Um, but they, you know, you could take the products from tier one that maybe should be focused on that first 21 days. And if you have applications left, according to the label, then you could intersperse them with these tier two materials. Got it. Um, And I think it'd be really reasonable. It's important to remind people that, you know, managing phytophthora is like managing a chronic illness. Uh And so it's not perfect. And so, you know, I've also had growers say, you know, I did everything the way, the way I think I've heard recommended, but yeah, I had some fruit loss. And then my answer is, you know, just imagine the amount of fruit loss you would have had, had you not used these, you know, effective products, if you had not adhered to a shorter application interval if you had not been on top of it using some of our other cultural tactics. Uh And really, you can never know what your losses might have been had you not taken the strategies that you did. You know, instead of having maybe 5% loss or 10% loss, which is, it's of consequence, right? It's not nothing. However, you could have had 60 70% 70% loss. And we've seen that we've seen uh-huh. in fields bypassed. Yep. So, so it's not, it's not perfect, but yeah, it's, it's, um, so I work up here in Oceania where, as you know, Mary, there's contracts mm-hmm. to fill and, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's some growers who, who have used this program who filled their contracts and maybe it wasn't perfect. And, Mm-hmm. It can be a struggle otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, thank you very much, Mary, for your time today. I know um, it's it's a really busy time of year for a plant pathologist. Um, um, I did put a link to your website into the chat so folks can um, visit that. There's a lot more information on both of the two OOMI seats we kind of focused on today and all of Mary's work. Um, on that website. So I encourage everybody to poke around. Um, thank you again for your time time sure. today with me, Mary. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, this has been a production of um, <clears throat> the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, um, which is a group of like-minded um, vegetable um, extension staff um, from, from across the region. And it's supported by the North Central IPM Center. Um, you can join us every Wednesday at 11.30 Central, 12.30 Eastern um, through the end of September. And next week, if you want to spice your day up, um, you can listen to Katie King interview a grower and extension specialist about the um, the world of growing Asian greens um, that can add some neat flavors to your palate. Um, well, I hope all of our listeners have a good week and thank you again, Mary, for being for your time today. And I wish you a, a, a good half, good 
better half to the rest a drier of your day. summer. We need, <laughs> we need a drier summer to finish off. So let, let's get the frequent rainfalls and, and, and moisture just, just a little bit lessened. And I think we'll be happier. Well, well, Mary, um, we were signing off and we got a, a question. So okay. it's like when you're saying goodbye to a relative and then, and then you remember you forgot something you have to say bye again. Um, so, and I, this is a good question, Chris. Thank you for your question, because um, I've heard it more than once. Um, is there any benefit for either downy mildew or phytophthora to using phosphoric acid products? For downy mildew, the answer is really clear, and that answer is no. Now, if we were talking downy mildew on impatience, um, the, the bedding plant impatience, we have done work there where as a drench, it has been helpful. And we've done that work um, with cucumber. We've, we've looked at it every which way and it, has, it, it does not offer the level of control that is needed. And so we've looked at it many, many times and there is a good reason that I don't have it in our recommendations. Got it, very good. Well, thank you, Chris, for your question. And thank you again, Mary, for joining us. And um, have a good second half of your day, Mary. And um, hopefully it started well and it'll end well. And the in-between was good, just like an Oreo sandwich. And, and hopefully our season will, I don't know if it started well, but hopefully it will end well. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Ben. Bye-bye. Thank you, Mary. Bye. Bye. Pythium phytophthora, pseudoparanospora, they're slime molds, or so I am told. Ooh, my seats. Hey, it's Ben here again, wrapping up the end of the show here and, tr- and encouraging you all to head over to glveg.net slash listen to take a survey at the top of the page where we've got a few questions about your preferences for the show. And if you learned anything, I well, hope you did. Have a good rest of the week. Bye.